Hi, everyone. Welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Andrea Pearson, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Lindsay Baroker. And today, we're really excited to be interviewing USA Today bestselling author Sarah K.L. Wilson, who hails from the Rocky Canadian Shield in northern Ontario, where she lives with her husband, two small boys, and wishes she had a dragon to help light fires in her wood stove during the long winters. <laughs> um, Sarah writes young adult fantasy. Uh, her career took off in, the er- in early 2018 with her successful Dragon School serial. She's been publishing books just about every month since. Uh, and we're going to ask her, or we're going to talk to her about the viability of serials, how she's kept her initial success rolling, and the young adult fantasy market in general. Uh, welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Andrea. Yeah, we're really excited. I, I'm especially excited. I'm like, I've been following you, you know, for a while now. And I'm like, she's like one of those really successful, cool, down to earth, friendly authors. <laughs> Andrea, you're, you were my first YA author friend in the indie world. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me happy. I'm like, yay, friends. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, we've got a lot to, um, to ask you about. Uh, and, and it's kind of funny because just this week we've been having people ask about cereals and we were like, hey, we've got somebody coming on. So, so this is really great timing. Um, but, uh, yeah, so first off, actually, this is just me being curious, but curious, but I need to hear more about where you grew up because <laughs> that bio, <laughs> that's such a funny, that's such a funny question because it's actually one of the harder ones for me. <laughs> My family, when I was growing up, moved 17 times before I was out of the house. So we lived all over Canada and a couple places in the USA, including Minnesota and California. And, um, very rurally in places in Canada. So for a few years when I was growing up, we'd see people maybe once a month. It was kind of unreal. Um, that was until I grew up and got out of the house and lived on my own. So I have a lot of experience with all kinds of places from like inner city to really far out in the woods. And it makes for kind of an interesting time as a writer because you have all kinds of inspiration growing up. Man, my husband would die for that. <laughs> like not seeing anybody for a whole month. Whoa. <laughs> and I'd probably die. For, I would die in that. <laughs> I'll admit, I kind of dug into that when I was trying to figure out what to do during this pandemic. I, w- I would think back and be like, what did my parents do when we wouldn't see people for forever? <laughs> No kidding. (laughs) Um, Okay, so on a more serious note, um, how did you get started with writing and indie publishing? So I wanted to, I wanted to write as an author for a very long time, and I I wrote a bunch of little stuff. And then around 2011, I wrote my first novel, and I tried to put it online, and I got really sick. I was pregnant, and that threw a, a wrench into everything. And I started up again in 2015 when my kids were big enough that I could actually focus a little bit. And I, I encountered Mark Dawson's SPF um, self-publishing formula almost immediately. And that kind of put me on the right foot for figuring out just the real basic stuff. Like, you know, you should probably have a newsletter. You might want to learn to advertise. Um, think about your genre. And all those great little basic things that indie authors should probably know. And that's where I met Andrea. And basically where I got started with my YA... I was writing YASF at the very beginning of science fiction. And then I moved into fantasy, which was my first love anyhow. 
And I think it's a little bigger audience also, so that possibly <laughs> helps. Um, so if any of our listeners kind of re- recognize your voice that listen to our old show, the Sci-Fi and Fantasy Marketing Podcast, they may remember or not, that you were on about two years ago, um, kind of when your first your serial was just really starting to come on strong, I think it was early 2018. And um, I'll put the episode in the show notes in case people want to check it out because we and we talked we called it Making Good Money with Serial Novellas and YA Fantasy. So who doesn't want to do those things um it looks like you've redone the cover since then and finished that serial and started a bunch of new stuff could you kind of talk about what you've been doing this last couple years oh absolutely so i i taught myself photoshop about two months into getting into dragon school and i redid all my covers with those um dad's figures that were all the rage and just starting in 2018 and um I, I finished Dragon School. It was 20 novellas long. And then I did a spin-off serial, Dragon Chameleon, which was also set in the same world um, with cameos from characters in the first series, but not the main character. That was someone totally new. And um, th- that was 12 episodes long. And then I did a second spin-off series, so a third Dragon series, Dragon Tide, and that was Underwater Dragons, and it was 10 episodes long. All the different serials had uh, episodes that were 20,000 words, roughly, give or take a couple. And um, I box-setted them after I was done each series into groups of four or five, depending on the series, to try and make an even number of uh, little omnibus sets. And, um, yeah, that, those are all my serials, those three. And I've done some full novels after that. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's, it's kind of overwhelming, too. <laughs> um, okay, so um, <laughs> Lindsay, Lindsay's poor dogs. You can, you can explain since I've been stuttering here if you want to, Lindsay. <laughs> Sorry, I had uh, shut all the blinds so that the dogs wouldn't have anything to bark at because I didn't want to stuff them back in the bedroom. It's kind of warm today, but... I had to stuff them back in the bedroom. So I hope that um, Sarah gave an excellent answer to my question, which I promptly left in the middle of as soon as I asked it. But um, go ahead, Andrea, you want to move into kind of the YA fantasy stuff? Yeah, yeah. We're going to go ahead and talk about marketing. Um, That's what everybody loves hearing about, including me. So um, what are things that currently work well for you when it comes to marketing YA fiction? Oh, my goodness. It feels like the market's really changed in the last year, I guess. And the only thing that really works for me these days is steady ads to a long backlist. So basically, um, of course, all my serials are fairly long. And then since I sell them either in sets and there's a few sets or as individual episodes and ask a a reasonable amount of money for those, um, my, my backlist is fairly strong. The only thing that's really working for me right now is advertising to those long series. And having like consistent, steady Facebook and Amazon ads pointing people to there. And it's like, I don't know, it feels a little bit more like a grind than it was in the old days when you could like throw things up in a newsletter and boom, there was a bunch of sell through and these really long tails. These days, it feels like every day you have to be in there, like just making sure your ads are ticking along and making sure that you're driving traffic to your series like slow and steady almost. I, I might be an outlier, but that's what I'm finding in YA fantasy right now. The old days of 2018 as uh, <laughs> Joe and Andrea and I are like, oh yeah, that was like yesterday. Um, but yeah, you definitely had some success with that serial. And did it end up being 20 books? Is that right? Or 20 installments? And you've seen yeah. 
box them up? Do you uh, try to sell the box sets with advertisements too? I've driven most of my traffic these days to the box sets because people seem to like them the most. There's four of them and I sell them for $9.99 each. So that's, you know, that's a reasonable income for those four sets. And each um, set is five novellas that are 20,000 words each. So that's only 100,000 words for those of you who are epic fantasy authors and do the, that, that, that's part, part of one of your books. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so that works out pretty well. I drive all my traffic these days to those box sets. So nine ninety nine is that what they are? I think I, I, that's what I poked around for a hundred thousand words. I, I think I'm undercharging here for my novels, <laughs> but they look like boxes. You make it, you know, it looks like five books in a box. Is there any um, resistance to that, or because they're in Kindle Unlimited too? Do you get a lot of people just um, doing the borrow? I had a lot of resistance to the individual episodes, which I was charging two ninety nine for. And I got a lot of reviews that said, do you even know how much this is going to cost you to read the whole series? Which I thought, well, yes, they can do math. So they probably do know how much it will cost them. But people put a few of those reviews on the top and they got upvoted. And so it was a bit harder to put the series individually at, at that price. So when I moved them to box sets at $9.99, um, that was actually a bit of a deal compared to what the individual episodes were. And I don't see any pushback from that. I occasionally have people talking to me about how it's pretty expensive and I always point them to KU and say, well, get, get yourself a one month subscription. If you're a fast reader, you can read the whole thing in one month. It will only have cost you $10. And I hope that then they stay in KU and read all those other amazing books too. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with charging more either, of course, you know, as long as the market will bear it. Sometimes some people will complain, but at the same time, you're selling really well. So <laughs> whatever works. Um, for people, though, who are wondering, was serious, what was your pricing like? Was it like 99 cents and then two ninety nine for all the following episodes, installments, episodes, whatever they are? Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I did. 99 cents for the first one and then two ninety nine for each one after that. And do you think uh, you've been all in with KU all the time, right? Do you think that's been pretty integral in uh, keeping the book selling? Yeah, um, especially for the serials, because it, I mean, if you look at all that money and you don't want to dive in, it's easier if you're in KU and you can just you can just read it in KU. Um, a lot less commitment. But also, I tried a foray wide this past summer with disastrous results. So apparently, my readers are not wide. <laughs> You know, that happens, you know, you end up cultivating a pretty specific uh, uh, audience. But speaking of specific audiences, uh, you, we're talking about uh, young adult fiction. Um, we talk a lot on the show about genre-defining tropes uh, in a lot of subgenres. Ignoring the key tropes can really torpedo a book's chance at success because it just violates reader expectation. Uh, what would you say are the defining tropes for, for young adult fiction? Yeah, well, young adult fantasy, we'll say. I think that, um, I mean, even in adult fiction, adult fantasy, you can have a coming of age kind of a plot line, but that seems to be even more major in a YA fantasy. There's a lot of um, the coming into your own, figuring out life without parents, um, figuring out life without, like with new magic or in a new setting or in a school or, you know, like, like, like those sort of coming of age kind of tropes are very strong in YA. And sometimes you can even tell, like, if you're reading a book that's a really good YA book and it, and you didn't 
notice when you download it, which I often don't, whether it was adult or YA. You can tell just by the way the story is told. It's often told in, um, it's hard for me to define this. It's told, it's told in sort of more of a straightforward style often too than an adult book might be. There's like a sense that the person is immersed in this world and has very little power over like the power structures and very little responsibility for that is just coming into figuring out how everything works. Whereas in an adult book, you might have somebody who has some level of responsibility already, or even as adults, like we know, like, like we voted in a few elections, what's maybe happening in our countries is partially our fault or that kind of thing. Whereas when you're a teenager, you've never done any of that. None of that responsibility is on you. And so you have like these young characters experiencing things for the first time with all that kind of optimism that comes with youth believing that you can change the world and hopefully in a great YA fantasy, they do. Now, how t- how tightly did you uh, stick to those formulas over the course of your series? Um, so obviously there's elements of that in all my books, but I went some, some different directions with each of my series. I, I really like to, and I, I find that readers of that genre really like um, stories of hope where like you have somebody who's an underdog and they find a way to save everything um, through friendship, through forgiveness, through all those kind of good traits. It's like, it's like the kind of genre where you're still allowed to be optimistic and cheerful about the world. <laughs> and I found um, my readers really liked that. Um, how tolerant would you say that the young adult like market is to, to variations from that stuff. Like if they don't find what they're looking for, do you tend to get some bad reviews and bad press, so to speak? You know, I don't really find that so much. I find that, that, that well, I mean, there's not a lot of people who are writing, say grim, dark YA. Maybe there are, but I haven't found them, but I don't really get reviews saying I didn't like the tropes. Um, Sometimes one thing that people tend to complain about in YA, if they're not a YA reader and they try to read those books is they complain about whiny characters. And that's because you have like a young character and they're figuring things out and say like their parents die. They might be upset about that. Um, but, but there's not actually a lot of tolerance from non YA readers for the fact that YA characters tend to be kind of angsty. I've definitely had that experience with my readers when I've tried to do a spinoff with like the kids, you know, that they're, they're like teenagers and they're like, that's so immature that their parents would never let them do those things. And I'm like, all right, I don't think you're really a YA person. I maybe just got to write to the audience that I have is kind of what I learned. <laughs> you mentioned that you um, do advertising to, you know, I assume AMS, Facebook. Um, you also write a lot. I was looking at what you've done in the last two years, you know, like, oh my gosh, he's got like finished the serial, the 20 book serial. And I don't know, have you done two new, two series of novels since then? Yeah. Is that part of your just uh, rapid release? I guess I can't talk. I write pretty quickly too, but um, how much does that help with the marketing? I think that does really help because you, you, you get to capture that energy that readers have when they like binge read through your series. I found it was helping a lot more um, in 2018, 2019 than it has been this year for me. But maybe that was just because I was working on the serials then and the serials were coming out every two weeks and they had so much momentum on their own that, that advertising didn't have to be as strong. And, whereas this year I've been doing full novels 
one a month. And so they're a little bit more spaced out. And I don't know why, but they even one a month doesn't seem to be quite fast enough to trigger whatever that fancy algorithm is that loves those rapid releases. So I, it's, I've had to slog a lot more with ads on these. I, it's actually made me consider going back to uh, doing another serial, even though I kind of need a break from every two weeks. <laughs> Even once a month is a, uh, some people might need a break from once a month. I don't know. I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any challenges with like, I feel like readers are so committed to the characters in the world after like 20 installments, however many novels that is equal to. Did you have challenges in getting them to try the new series that you were doing? Yeah, I didn't have near as many people interested in the spin-off series as I expected because they didn't have the primary characters. But I did still get a fair bit of read through to those. Um, my new series, my hardcore readers aren't as excited about because it's not in that world and it's not dragons. And that's really quite interesting because, you know, you get those dragon readers, they want all dragons. Um, but it's hard to tell the, the muse that it can't do what it wants to do. <laughs> Yeah, it can be a little frustrating when you're like, okay, we have a business plan. And then your brain's like, no, no, here's the story I want to tell. Uh, but all right, so how far out do you schedule, uh, how, how far do you write and schedule releases? Like, what's your pipeline look like? So I'm scheduled right now out, out about six months because that's, I'm starting a new series and I have six books I'm writing for it. Um, I usually start writing about, for for a full for a full book for which for me is about sixty thousand words, I start writing about a month and a half before I want to release, and that gives me enough time to write, edit, format, get it set up, and get it to arc readers, and then get it out. Um, so I, I have about a, a month and a half right now during the COVID uh, turnaround before my kids were out of school. All the time I could do that in four weeks, which was my old turnaround time. And I really liked that. I've had to shuffle my whole schedule right now. And it was a real pain, but I think I'm on track again. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Um, so how closely do you watch the releases of, of your books, especially when you're doing like something that could be in a series to sort of see if you have to adjust and like, does the length of your pipeline ever feel like it's going to rob you of some nimbleness in that regard? Yeah, um, some of those, well, my, my two spinoff series, serials, were 12 books and 10 books, as opposed to the original series, which was 20. And that, those were both shortened because I just saw a reader interest flagging. And so I just, I just tightened up the plot a little bit and trimmed it down and reduced how long it was. Um, I did the same thing with another series I've done since then, Bridge of Legends. I had some very expensive cover art I had on those. And when I noticed that readers were not interested, I cut the series off about two books shorter than I had anticipated. So I have a little bit of room for juggling if I have to. I try not to put things up for pre-order more than one book ahead, just in case I have to do some fancy quick steps. So if, I mean, you pretty much got started in Dragons, right? Um, yes. If you had to do it again, would you change anything about that? Oh, gosh, no. Dragons have been very good to me. Um, I, I wrote Dragons because Lindsay suggested on the science fiction and fantasy marketing podcast that you can't go wrong with dragons. And I desperately needed to make a full-time living at this before my oldest son went back to school or I had to go get a job somewhere else. And I didn't want to do that. I hated my old job in marketing and sales. And so I wrote Dragons. And <laughs> dragons have been very, very kind to me. 
You know, what's really funny. Like I listened to the old, I listened to the old show, just like, you know, our <laughs> listeners listen to the old show and Lindsay would be like one episode dragons, but a dragon on cover sells. Then the next episode, she'd be like, dragons don't sell nearly as well as other genres. And she'd be like, dragons, put a dragon on the cover itself. And I'm like, Lindsay, which is it? <laughs> you need to defend yourself, Lindsay. <laughs> the, the dragon sell. <laughs> the dragon cell in epic fantasy secondary world fantasy i haven't found them to be quite as enticing in the contemporary urban fantasy maybe not as much of an auto buy but i don't know if yeah. i never ever said they don't sell but it's not if you want it to be like thrillers or romance it's still not going to be that big of an audience there's a very special dragon audience out there so yeah, that's where I'm struggling because I'm like, I like contemporary. That's just where I'm most comfortable writing and I love dragons. So I'm like, ah, we've got to make them accept dragons in contemporary fantasy. <laughs> um, but, um, okay. So you would say that, I mean, you would say that writing dragons, I mean, it's, it's been treating you very, very well. Um, and I'm just trying to, I'm trying to figure out if, if I want to ask my question right now or not, but I mean, and you can tell me if this is okay or not. But when we were chatting back and forth, you're like, I want to write more complex stories. Um, how, how have you found a way around that at all? Well, that's why I took this little uh, divergent move into novels for a little while. Yeah. Um, and I, I also moved away from dragons. I put some in my Bridge of Legends series, but they're not the good guys that you ride and are best buddies with. They're the bad guys that are the size of the city and all the cities are built on top of these dragons that rise up and cause all kinds of trouble but um the the, the readers who love the, the dragons that you ride were not excited about that at all <laughs> and um they haven't necessarily embraced my next series either i tried to write to trend i tried to write a phase series because they're you know they're they're i thought they were going to be really popular this year and i really like how my series turned out in fact i'm it's probably the series i'm the most proud of and it's gotten its own little following, but they're not the people who loved my dragon books at all. So that's kind of an interesting thing. I'm, I'm not upset about that because I feel like if you make your blacklist fairly wide while still inside your genre and still inside your subgenre, um, that's only a good thing because you can only capture more pieces of market and have new places to advertise. Um, but it's just not as uh, strong as the dragon ones were. <laughs> Oh, and I'm doing a, a new one, and it has no dragons either. Wow. It's, it's funny. It, maybe because people are so very picky about the, the way they like their dragons, sometimes separating from the dragons for a little while is like a palate cleanser. And sort of like, oh boy, any dragons. <laughs> you know, you just develop uh, uh, expectations. But uh, now you said that you're, for your serials, uh, you were writing at uh, 20,000 words was your target? Mm -hmm. uh how rigid was your release schedule with those like were you were you hitting them like literally every two weeks so for dragon school i was doing every 18 days and then for dragon chameleon it was exactly um 14 days every two weeks and then um i went back to 18 days with dragon tide because it was i didn't notice a difference in how well they did and those extra four days were fantastic I can imagine they would be <laughs> punishing yeah, keeping that schedule up. Uh, how much of an expectation did the audience have? Like how sensitive were they to the, to the schedule? Like when things started to change and such. 
Oh, um, they really liked, like they liked having a schedule. They didn't mind if it was 14 days or 18 days, but they wanted to know exactly when it was because they would like wait for it on their Kindle when it's going that quickly. Like it's like your favorite TV show, right? Like, you know, when it's going to be, you expect it to be there when you log in. And so it, um, they didn't mind the variance between those two as long as I was rigid about keeping it. And so I always had the next one on pre-order ready to go. And so there wasn't like any, any problems with them getting it exactly on time. Yeah, it's, real, it's like appointment television only with books. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. And we were talking about this uh, in our previous episode where uh, when I was writing serials, I would often sort of reintroduce concepts because for all I know, somebody had first, you know, had last read about that in the last chapter that it was mentioned in, which might've been two months ago. Uh, how do you uh, address, you know, reintroducing information and sort of revisiting plot points to keep people's minds fresh? Oh, I'm so awful. I just, I just wrote them straight and assumed that you could keep up and that you were going to read straight through with me. And so um, I actually didn't get any complaints about it, although I did put out an appendix, like a free appendix you could download that had like names, places, um, people, and everything that like like prophecies, anything that I thought they might need to go back and take a look at because they might have forgotten. And so I had that as a download at the back of the books. And I'd be like, well, if you are lost, feel free to download this free thing. But I just wrote them basically like with the assumption that they were following along I have thought about it since. And I thought if I did it again, I would love to start a book with just a little tiny caption at the front that said previously on as if it was a TV show and literally have it as long as one for a TV show would be, which is like four sentences, right? And so if I do it again, I'm totally going to do that because I think it's kind of genius, but I didn't do that. Well, when you're releasing them every couple of weeks too, probably it's not like a year has passed since they read the last installment. So they probably remember it. We should say that's a really good point about like, if you can put them out regularly on the same day or, you know, whatever, every other week, there seems to be a lot of power in that. We've certainly seen it with podcasting. This morning, our show didn't go up as early as it usually did. And um, somebody was telling Joe, hey, is the episode coming? And then the Facebook group, hey, is the episode coming? So it's, you know, and if you become part of someone's life like that, their routine, you know, they're going to look for you even if they're not on your mailing list. Yeah. I haven't quite managed to figure out how to do that with novels to be quite that regular. Like if you could do one every month on the first, do you try to do that at all now that you're doing the longer fiction? Yeah. Um, I, I, I was trying to put them exactly 30 days apart for a while there. Um, I, the, these last two, I ended up change, like I was alternating series. So every 30 days between two series, but these last two have been from one series because I was not able to write as quickly as I had hoped to during this pandemic. And, um, I had to give myself a little space after this last one to get my next one ready. Probably just have to write the whole, uh, 10 novel <laughs> series ahead of time, but then you're not making money for not organizing anything. So it's, it's hard to do all the things <laughs> that you want to do. And it does seem to matter. It, it almost feels like Amazon knows if you're not releasing something and it affects your other books. I don't know how it does, but it, it, it seems to work that way for me in a month when I don't release. It's like it, it affects my other books. 
It is entirely possible. I, I was kind of laughing at you mentioning the dragons because I was like, I, I think I'm going to do sci-fi again next. So I don't have to, I don't feel compelled to like put dragons in the sci-fi. But um, the last couple fantasy series have had dragons. So I'm like, and I, I was thinking if I do another epic fantasy, I think I don't want to do dragons. You know, I think I want to do something new. <laughs> But I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I think if you kind of train your readers that you do jump around and do different things, that, you know, it'll be less of a thing if all you've ever done is dragons. And then you're like, Faye, we're doing Faye this week. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see how it goes for you. It's really funny. I, I'm a huge fan of the TV show Survivor. And I just watched the most recent um, season of that. And it's all the winners from past seasons coming back and playing against each other. Anyways, um, it, it made me think about um, writers who are veterans, who have like many series out. And uh, you get to like a certain point where you've seen it all happen before. And, and so you want to try new strategies just to see how they play out almost. Kind of like the people on that show were like, you know, I just want to do something different than I did the last time. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you're going to bring all of your characters together to compete and see which one does not get voted off the island in the end. I don't know. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Keep it in mind. Uh, I expect 5% if you go with that story idea. So I did want to ask for people who, because, you know, we have had interest in people are like, I want to do a serial, you know, whether I'm Patreon or in Kindle Unlimited. As far as the craft goes, did you... Like make each one have like a mini climax and like, was it its own individual story or did you just write a big story and hack it up and <laughs> try to end it on a cliffhanger spot so they bought the next one? So I definitely did end them on cliffhangers. And I feel like that's really key um, to that model because otherwise it's easier to put it down. Just like how you like to end chapters on cliffhangers just to keep people going through, through everything. Um, but... I've realized since I wrote this, I, I, that I, although I call it a serial, technically a serial is supposed to have like, it, it's supposed to be where you could hop on to any episode. Whereas mine wasn't written like that. It was written in a big arc, but each individual episode did have a full, um, a full arc, like plot arc for that. So a full like beginning, middle end, and it, and it had a full climax and an ending that, that like made sense, even though it was part of this huge, big saving the world arc. And you could not read them out of order. Like you had to read them in order because they were all part of this big story. But I felt like everyone had a, a satisfying ending to that part of, of the story. So like if they were like, for instance, one of the, one of the books in the series, they start, they're in the cave system and there's an injured ruler that they're trying to protect. So that whole story is about them fleeing through this cave system and the big epic climax when they fight the bad guys and then they get out and, the them on their way out is the cliffhanger and then the next story starts where that leads off so you do get like a whole story but it's only part of the huge story at the same time kind of like i don't know like like wheel of time or something although those are very huge books they're part of like a huge arc too yeah, you know, it's funny, like, as you talk about this, uh, serials, you talk about, like, they're supposed to stand alone and all that. Um, Star Wars started with episode four, and, and uh, <laughs> lots of people say that it was specifically supposed to emulate the feeling of coming in halfway through the series, and, like, back when the serials were literally just things they showed in theaters. And now it's, it strikes me you're talking about adding a little thing at the beginning to tell people where we are, and that's just the opening crawl, so... It sounds to me like you've got a pretty successful formula to copy off of here. Woo! 
<laughs> but um, all right. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about your covers. Uh, you've you've had you know you've had a lot of experience with covers, and uh, you, the covers that you've got tend to be pretty distinctive and consistent across your entire series. So what's your process for for doing covers? Well, I I made my own covers for all the dragon ones. So for Dragon School, Dragon Tide, Dragon Chameleon. Um, and my more recent series, I have illustrators working for me and I'm doing the typography for them. Um, I think that it's the typography that makes my series look kind of consistent across um, all my different series. So I would actually recommend if anyone can learn their own typography that they do that. Because I've noticed other authors who do well in my subgenre are doing their own typography on top of illustrations too. And so that way you can kind of like, you know, your feeling, you know, your brand, you can make it consistent across different series in a way that it's harder to like get a new cover designer every time to try and figure out. And that it gives you a lot of flexibility in who you hire for your uh, illustrator too. Now that I have illustrated covers because I can hire any illustrator I want knowing that I'm going to make their, their art fit my brand because I'm going to put my own typography on top of that. That makes a lot of sense. And again, you, you release very rapidly. Like even, even your slower release schedule is uh, way faster than most people can manage. And I find like it, I in particular find, uh, I ha always have illustrated covers and it's sometimes really hard to get an illustrated cover on anything resembling a schedule because illustrators tend to be pretty darn backed up. So how do you, how do you deal with the, uh, the, the long tail of, of illustration? So for that, I'm basically, I'm stocking them. So I get an illustrated started about six months to a year before I'm going to need them. And I get them going and I get them to do like five or six, which is, has its own pitfalls because I have no idea what I'm going to put in these books. I just, I just have to make, I'm like, do six of these for me and let's hope they work out. And, um, and so like right now, I'm just, I just started work on a brand new series. I have six covers for that one. I'm hoping it's going to be six novels long. Otherwise, I'm going to be scrambling for illustration towards the end. But I've already got someone started on the series after that on the illustration, hoping that she'll get enough ahead that I can get working on that um, in plenty of time to have six or seven of those stocked up before I get there. And how much information do you sort of have to get together in order to give an illustrator so that they'll sort of they'll know, like... Obviously, there's going to have to be a, a little bit of understanding of the setting and the characters, but like, what's your what's your cover brief look like? So I usually have my my concept um, tagline and blurb, and then I tell them what I want for a central character and what kind of a mood I'm going to have for the background. Um, and I give them some comp pictures of ideas that I have. Because often when I plan a series, before I actually even get to the details, I'm thinking about like the tone, uh, the subgenre, what my comps are going to be that I want to advertise against when I get there. And so those kind of things kind of determine your cover anyhow. So it makes it easy to pick my covers before I even really know like the details of the story. I like, for instance, the series coming up that I'm hoping to write in 2021, it's going to be about um, this YA fantasy girl and of uh, her bodyguard. So I know, okay, I'm going to want her bodyguard and her in the picture, and I'm not going to want much else to distract from that. And so that's kind of what I'm telling my cover designer. 
you're not going to want much else like clothes and background <laughs> and things like that, right? Well, I'm not quite, not quite that saucy of a writer, but, <laughs> but I've been, I've been really drawn lately to, um, the, the, the YA fantasy that doesn't have a lot of background because it seems to stand out well in thumbnails. So I've been kind of directing my cover designers to give me less background. Oh yeah, that's a good, a good point. Um, okay. So I've got a bunch of author, like author business questions for you, if that's okay. Um, um, okay. So you mentioned that this past summer you tried wide for a little while. Uh, and I know that like historically they always say, you know, it takes a couple of years to do that, which most authors don't, they can't afford for it to take a couple of years, you know? Um, but if you were forced to go wide, how would you tackle that? Like permanently go wide and not use Kindle limit at all anymore? I have thought about that actually a bit. I think that I think that if I got into that position, I'd want to hit pretty hard with Facebook ads out the gate, um, and and hope to build momentum that way. That, that was the best I managed with my series, and I would definitely not keep my price point low because I could not make Facebook ads work for me at a low price point. They only worked for me at a higher price point. So I'd need them to sell at $4.99 plus book, which is a fair bit of money. But I noticed that the white authors who do well are selling their books at that price. At least in my genre, like Jillian Dodd is amazing in YA. She's wide. She sells her books at a high price point. Um, Melissa Wright writes YA fantasy. She's amazing. She's wide and she, well, she has a first in series that's free, but the rest of her books are sold at a good high price point. She, and she does really well also. Um, how, how long are their books compared to yours? Like the length and all that? Yeah, they're longer than mine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's my books are short. Mine are 40 to 50,000 words long. And those are my full length novels. You know, my novellas are, you know, 20,000 words. And so, I mean, these are things I think about. (laughs) Well, see, I'm with you. My, my full novels are 50 to 60,000 words because, and for me, it's all about, I, I, I can't afford to write longer number of novels because I can't sell them at a high enough price point. And, and so it's just a matter of like, I have this many hours to make a book and so I need to be able to make money from that many hours. And it, it's just not feasible to, to write that many. Like if I wrote a 200,000 word novel and then sold it at two ninety nine, how in the world am I ever going to make enough money to pay for all that time? Yeah, no, that's one thing. I mean, we, when I reached out to you, uh, was it like two months ago? I was like, I, I just had questions about cereals because I mean, you know, my life is kids and crazy. And like, this might match my life right now because I can't write longer books. I just do not have the time. And that's something I could not grasp until I had kids. You know, before I had kids, I'm like, what's wrong with you? My books were like 90,000 words before my kids, you know? And so it just, they've become, it's just necessary. In order for me to release something, I've had to shorten them quite a bit. And yeah. I kind of miss writing the long stuff, but it's really satisfying to finish a book. <laughs> so. And there is something, there, there are, is an audience for the really short stuff because yeah. the other people who are readers are living lives like yours and mine where they barely have time to breathe, but they still want to read. And so they feel like, oh, it's kind of neat that I, in the weekend I managed to knock off a book and that's like a novella but it's still a book to them and mm-hmm. it feels good to them to have like that in, enjoyable book experience in a really short burst because their lives are also chaotic. And I found that there are like a ton of people like that and they write to me and say, Oh yeah, I got to read books for the first time in years. <laughs> and I think well, that's good. It's not everybody. And that's why I, I'm trying to diversify a bit, but there is a huge chunk of people who also have no time. <laughs> yeah. 
It's true. Um, okay. So what advice do you have for like new authors, brand new authors starting out who want to try writing serials? Um, my first advice, I guess, would be to try and figure out a way to get your covers cheaply because if you're going to do serials, that's the, that's the choke point. It's trying to figure out how to do covers because you can't afford to spend 1200 bucks a cover if you're going to do 20 of them, (laughs) or maybe you can, but then you really don't need to make money from your writing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so it's trying to figure out a way to get covers, um, in a reasonable way. And there's different ways to do that. If you look at, um, say Craig Martell's serials, what he did is use the same cover art for all of them, but changed the way the title was and made that different colors. So that was one way to do it. I've seen other people do, um, where they have the same art, but they changed the background color on everyone. Um, I managed it by learning Photoshop and Daz so I could make my own covers. And so I could do them for like four bucks a piece. That's just how much it costs to get photos off deposit photos. <laughs> um, so if that's in your skill set, then figuring out how to learn to make covers is all actually a good idea if you're going to write serials because you have to do so flipping many of them. So that's the number one thing I think is like really figure out what you're going to do about your covers. The second one is to study um, addictive storytelling. So there's like all kinds of amazing ways to tell stories, but if you can figure out a way to write really fast paced and with lots of dopamine hits so that people keep coming, (laughs) then that's pretty essential to keeping them hooked for book after book, after book, after book in a serial in a way that you don't have to, if you've gotten to download your, your long novel, then you know, they're, they're going to keep reading it because it's already on their Kindle. And so you don't quite need to have them hooked in the same way you do if you want to keep selling them over and over and over again. So that's kind of another thing to study is um, fast pace and addictive kind of storytelling. So kind of like watching 24, you know, yes. that show was, yeah, like everything. I mean, like there's no <gasps> way anybody could physically live that long and do all those things. But I mean, that's the way that show is. It's like serials and very, very fast paced. Yeah, you just can't look away because every time you feel like, okay, I'm going to go get some chips, something terrible happens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, And the covers, um, you, yeah, you have a set of covers. I just looked it up on Amazon, your Faye Conqueror. That's kind of the formula you've got where you've got the main character changes, but the background um, pretty much stays the same. Is that, did you do those covers? I mean, how did you... I worked with an illustrator for those ones. And I, I, I just liked the idea of, um, this, the series looking that, that's that much the same by just changing the central figure. And so I asked them to do that for me. I really also, like give me a look. bit of a deal. Oh, <laughs> Thank <good>. you. <laughs> See what I'm thinking about doing. Cause I reached out to you. I was like, I, I want to do this. I used to do my own book covers. I'm thinking about, and, and for listeners, they could probably try this too. If they take your advice and learn Photoshop and all that, I'm thinking about going to the book cover design marketplace group and saying, this is what I've got. I, a project. I, I need somebody who will create the base, the, the template basically, and I will create the rest. And so and I'd offer them, you know, more than they would charge for one book cover because they're only getting one book cover out of me. Um, and then I would just manipulate the colors and, and just change, tweak things here and there. Um, sorry. What yeah. was that? Oh no, I was just, I was just totally agreeing with you because you obviously have those skills and I feel like somebody, you probably could ask somebody to sell you a bulk bunch of like, just give me the background and, and give it to me in a PSD so I can change the colors. My, yeah. my illustrator's fantastic about that. He sends me PSDs and lets me play with them. 
Yeah, that my my current um, cover designer, I went through so many right after I was like, okay, I can't do this anymore. Went through so many, but the one I, I hired, oh, he's fantastic. Like he, he only charges a little bit extra and then, and he doesn't even care if I, I mean, one of the cover designers I was with was like, you can't even, she, she was like, you can't crop the image. You can't, you can't use it on ads. You can't do this. I'm like, what the heck? How am I supposed to market my books? Right. I, I think that's really key too. If you buy, and this is going off topic because it has nothing to do with cereals, but if, when I buy my um, illustrations, I make sure I buy the full copyright because I tell them I'm going to do what I want with this. It's going to go on t-shirts if I want. It's going to go on postcards. I'm going to, I'm going to change the image if it's not working well for me um, online. I'm going to change, I'm going to like put purple in the background or something, for instance, and I'm going to, I'm going to play all around with it. So I need to work with somebody who's okay with that <laughs> and mm-hmm. who sells me the full copyright because I was in a cover design group and I saw how many illustrators and cover designers say that they won't let you touch their stuff. And I thought, Oh gosh, no, I'm not working like that. Yeah. (laughs) And so they usually, yeah. No, I was just going to say that's not, that's not off topic because we're, I mean, author business stuff. I mean, a lot of people when they're first starting out, they don't recognize how stingy some cover designers can be and recognizing what you want ahead of time. I mean, that's really valuable, you know? Yeah. And usually they ask you to pay a little bit more for full copyright and it's totally worth it. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Um, okay. So how, here's another, um, a question about this one's more about ads and all that, but how do you determine how much to spend on ads? Cause you were saying that that's basically what's working right now. So how much do you allot to it and how do you determine that? I like to, I like to be making at least as much as I'm spending. And I don't mean like breaking even, I mean, I like a hundred percent ROI. So that if I'm spending a dollar, I'm bringing in $2. So I get to keep one. And if my ads aren't doing that well, then I, I, I fix things. And, um, that way I can, I can cover all my costs and pay myself good money and also give to charities and that kind of thing. And like, and like run my, my business, like a business instead of just trying to scramble a little bit. So, um, it is possible with enough read through and stuff that you can get your ads performing like that. Some people do even better than that with their ads. I don't have the, enough time to tweak mine to make them to peak performance, but I keep mine at adequate performance. And for me, that basically means if I'm spending 200 bucks in ads that day, I should be bringing in 400 bucks that day, etc. Okay. So I was actually going to ask that. I mean, is that including um, series read through or is that the first book? I mean, that you're for, advertising? Yeah. For, I calculate it with series read through with the whole, well, yeah, with the whole nine yards. I was going to say that's, that's really hard to get on a first book. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. No, that's awesome. Um, do you have a formal written business plan? And if so, what does it look like? I do not. I read that. I, I heard you're going to ask me that. I'm like, Oh gosh, maybe I should figure out what a formal written business plan. <laughs> I, have, I have a very informal approach to everything. I'm a panster when I write. And that's also how I started business. I just dove in and got to it. But I, I mean, I definitely would say I have a business plan now. It's just not written out. Like I know I am writing in YA fantasy. I'm releasing once every month. I expect to get X amount of money from my ads and I expect to spend X amount of money every month. I, um, I, every book that I write, I put into ACX and I get an audiobook made out of it. I make hardcovers and paperbacks for everyone because I feel like the more formats you have, the more money you can make off these products and the better chance they have at surviving and at pleasing every kind of reader because people like them in every format possible. And, um, 
quality is super important to me. So I, I am willing to spend money on good cover art and on good narrators because um, that's part of my brand. I, I hope that's hoping to answer it. <laughs> hoping to answer things. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Um, okay, so back to the ads again, because I'm I'm kind of hooked on the the Facebook Amazon ads, and I love Facebook ads. They're like my favorite thing in the world. Um, when you started recognizing that that was what was working, how I mean, was it hard to like pull, to plunge farther into it? I mean, because sometimes you know you don't get the money back for a while, and it's just I mean you have to spend more to make more. I mean, how did you handle all of that? So. I started spending money on ads when my cereal took off. So it was already doing well on its own and making lots of money. So actually I had a really soft launch into ads because it was like, Oh, yay, they're working. And I'm sure it had nothing to do with them at first. And, but then I came to a point where I wasn't releasing Dragon School books anymore. And my income took a huge hit as I went into the spinoffs. And my, I suddenly I thought my ads weren't performing, but it was just that they had never been performing as well as I thought they were. And that's when I, that's when I had to kind of figure out what the heck I was doing. And things kind of tumbled, tumbled, tumbled. And I figured out my ads enough to boil them up and slowly bring them up to a level that I'm now like happy with again. Um, so I do think it takes a little bit of work. I think Facebook ads take a lot less work because mine at least seem to do better over time as that social proof gathers because I'll have like an ad with several hundred comments on it from people saying, Oh, I read that book and it's good. And enough comments like that. And people are like, Oh, obviously it's good. And so then your ad just gets better. Whereas Amazon ads don't seem to work that way. And I still feel like I'm figuring them out, even though I've been doing them now for years. <laughs> Yeah, it's really tough with uh, KU not being, with us not knowing like how many of our clicks are actually turning into borrows and reads. And it, when you're just doing well, when your series kind of catches on too, it's hard to tell how much is from the, the algorithms and how much is coming in from the ads. So it's, it's actually easier to take a series that hasn't been selling and then advertise it. And then you can see exactly what happens as a result of it. Exactly. And I think that it's really helpful to like find other authors right in your small niche and hopefully ones who are making about as much money as you and to figure that out together because th then they have data that from things they're trying and you have data from things you're trying and there's more than just your own data to try and figure out what, what the heck works in this. Yes, I keep hoping that Amazon ads or even the KDP dashboard will start showing you how many borrows you get. Because um, they used to show that, so I know it's in there. Uh, when I first started KDP Select, it told you how many borrows you got. Nothing about the page reads because they didn't care back then. Um, but uh, I love your tip that to do inexpensive covers for serials because you're going to be doing so many of them. And I, I have no design skills. So when I did one with my pen name, I just asked the designer, give me one cover. And then we changed the color of the font and the title on each one and it seemed to work fine. You know, that was only six, maybe for 20, we would have been in like fluorescent yellow green font and that might not have worked by that time. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I feel like people, like when you start making more like you did, you can spend more on covers and get the illustrations, but it's really not necessary. Some of my best series have got the Photoshop manipulation covers. Yeah. I, I mean, I look back at some of my early covers and I think, oh dear, but I don't want to change them because they actually did really well. <laughs> yeah. I've got some like that too. I'm like, that's my best selling series. No, we're not touching that. <laughs> I'm not touching the blurb. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> um, 
So I guess this is my last question is just, you mentioned that like when you're selling really well, you can kind of maybe not pay as much attention to like uh, ad spend or you guys want to, you know, throw some more money than you would at the covers. But um, if a series doesn't do quite as well, do you have any tips to kind of like stay motivated? And it's like, you're still selling well we should point out it's not like um sarah no longer sells any books at all for a new series <laughs> it can be tough when you have one i've had that too where one is really successful and then the next one's like oh it just does okay um any tips for folks that might be in the same situation i think that that's a really common thing because i have a lot of friends who are in the same boat as me where you've had like one series that took off and does amazing and then you do lots of other ones where maybe readers are not as excited but you know that it's good work and I guess my biggest tip for people is just don't lose heart because you haven't lost it and your books are still good and there's still audiences for them. Um, and I mean, I keep thinking to myself, well, someday maybe I'll write another series that takes off like that. And even if not, I just feel so grateful for the fact that I get to do this full time. And that kind of helps with, with the days when I think, oh, people don't like my new books as much as they like my old books. <laughs> Because I can think, well, I'm really grateful that they liked that first series and it keeps on selling and keeping me up there while I'm trying to figure out what it is they want to read now. It's definitely a good way to look at things. Um, all right. So I, I'm going to finish off with, uh, we actually talked a, a fair bit about this already, but like you have, I, I, it seems like a big part of your business plan involves the, uh, the omnibuses and collected editions. And in particular, when I was looking through, it seems like you have a lot of different kinds of collected editions. You're not like there's, you know, book one through four and then, you know, five through, et cetera. But you also have like full series ones. So like, how how do you select those, first of all? So I think my only... Well, I, my ones before Dragon School were just not very good. So I put them into bundles and put them cheap because I feel like readers shouldn't have to pay very much for them because they weren't very good. And then um, after my Dragon School, Dragon Tide, Dragon Chameleon series, I wrote a series called Bridge of Legends. And I paid a lot of money on the cover for those and they just bombed. Um, they, nobody liked them. I tried them wide first and that's how I launched them and they didn't do well wide. Then I moved them to KU and they didn't do well in KU. So I've been running that series as a full series box set at 99 cents just as I thought, well, someone should still read it. It was a good story. So I, I feel like I'm almost giving it away. <laughs> But I, it was a good story. I think people should read it. So that was my mindset behind that. It has nothing to do with business. It's not even probably a good business decision. It's just that I, I, I hate to see it sit there and not be read. Um, whereas the Dragon Books, they're priced the way they are because I feel like they're strong enough that they can be sold at that price point. Um, my, news, my most recent series, my Fae Books, I don't even think I'm going to box set them because they sell adequately as individuals and I'm afraid of stealing those sales. But um, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's where I'm at with those. <laughs> All right. And, and just as a quick follow-up uh, for, do you ever include a story in more than one box set? Like, do you do a version that's books one through four and then later on a full series? You know, I've never done that. Um, I've, I've heard that Amazon doesn't like it, and I'm nervous about treading on their toes with my better selling series. I have thought about doing um, all my Dragon series starters in one, but because they're they're like interwoven, there's like spoilers in the first books, so that I, I feel like that might backfire for me. 
Um, let's see, Lindsay, what are you saying in comment right We're now? Just, yeah, you're like, I was just going to say that I think that the last I heard from Amazon is that you're not supposed to do, like you could do one through three and four through six, like you've done, but they might have a problem if you should do one through three and then like one through six. And it's more of a Kindle Unlimited thing, I think, than like you couldn't do it on Amazon. And that's just, sometimes you get different stuff depending on which rep you talk to too. So it's, I like to just play it safe and uh, <laughs> not try to use the same book in multiple bundles right now. I agree. I'm in, in terror of offending the Amazon gods since they determine my fate. <laughs> so I always play it safe. Yeah, um, I, I'm with you there. It, it's kind of problematic, though, because I mean, that's why I was asking my question about what would you do if you ever had to go wide, because sometimes they do target innocent people, you know. And I mean, I would say that probably happens more in the case of one person, and they're very vocal about it. And it doesn't happen very often to most people. But I still, you know, like to have a plan for in case it does. <laughs> oh, for sure. I thought about that, too. Um there was some stuff in the news about six months ago about Amazon that made me nervous. And I was like, Oh, if they fold, what the heck am I going to do? And I think it's a good idea to have backup plans and to think through what you would do because it, these things could happen. Yeah. Yeah, they could. That's when you say, I'm going to become a plumber or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when my husband found out how much plumbers made, he was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, um, that's pretty much it for this episode. Um, did you want have any last words of advice? Anything that you want to say to, especially right now with this whole coronavirus and everything, anything you want to um, say to authors? I think it's I think it's just such a hard time to be a creative person because it's hard to be inspired when you're under stress. And I just I hope everybody can just hang in there and be patient because this can't be forever. And if we can all just, just be kind and simmer down a little, because there's been a lot of drama, and, and, and just take a big breath, we're all going to be okay, and we're all create beautiful stories again. Yes. <laughs> so just be all about plagues in 2020. <laughs> 2021, they'll all start coming out. <laughs> oh, I'm totally going to write. My, my 2021 one is going to have a plague. I'm not, not ashamed of that at all. <laughs> I actually had a virus thing going in mind. I'm like, you stole my idea, coronavirus. Now I look like I'm just following on your coattails. <laughs> we'll have to have like a virus multi-author box set that we can all put our virus fantasy in. Excellent idea. <laughs> That's so weird. 2021. Holy cow, we're halfway there already. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, so where can people find you? Where do you want to send people who are interested in checking out your books, etc.? You can find me at www.sarahkaywilson.com and on Amazon. Yeah, the KL. Are, do you mind if we ask what that stands for? Carissa Lynn. My mom could not pick middle names and gave me many. <laughs> That's awesome. My mom couldn't pick middle names, so gave me none. <laughs> <laughs> I got off easy. My brothers have like four each. What? Are you serious? <laughs> holy cow okay i feel bad for them filling out government forms <laughs> oh they're awful <laughs> and they're so long they're like long names like like jonathan and britain and i don't know my parents were crazy <laughs> <laughs> i think all of our parents are a little crazy <laughs> that's what happens when you only see people once every month up in the canadian <laughs> wilds you like that's talking right. to the bears and squirrels and things <laughs> give your kids a bazillion names in hopes that you have more people to talk to <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> Makes trying to catch the right, the right full name wrong, um, hard though. <laughs> <laughs> when your mom's mad and uses all your names. Yep. All right. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up now. Um, yeah. Thank you to everyone for listening and thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six and please consider leaving us a review and join our Facebook group if you would like to ask us questions and etc. Um, thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us and we will talk to everyone later. Bye. Bye everyone. So long everybody. <laughs>